Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week I have a guest, someone to come and speak about literature or liturgy, architecture, music, uh, history. They tell their conversion story. They speak about their apostolate or some of the books or articles they've written. And today my guest is Rhonda Chervin. Rhonda is the author of 65 books. She's also a professor of philosophy at Holy Apostles Seminary in Connecticut. And uh, Rhonda, welcome to More Christianity. Oh, I'm very happy to be here, Father Dwight. I'm a great admirer of yours, as you know. Rhonda, we're here in South Carolina, where we don't get a lot of snow. I know you struggle sometimes with the cold weather. How are you doing? Is it cold up there yet? It's very, very cold because of the AC. Oh, because of the air conditioning. Okay. Rhonda, I know you have a great fan base out there, people who've read your books, who follow, who followed your blog when you were writing, and who are very enthusiastic about your work. You always approach our Catholic faith with um, a high level of intelligence and good humor. Uh, you've always got laughter and joyfulness in your, in your, in your spirit, and you're always in, ready to engage in the latest enthusiasm for our faith. So I'm glad you could be a, a guest here with us. Now, I'm not sure if, if everybody knows that you're actually a convert to the faith, and you were brought up in an atheistic Jewish household. Is that correct? That is correct, and that's very rare. Most Jews are not atheists. Mm-hmm. However, in my family, all the way back, there were atheist Jews, and my parents met in the Communist Party. And, however, they later got disillusioned with the Communist Party and became anti-communist atheists. So (laughs) So I was brought up in this unusual circumstance where we never talked about God, ever. Never went to any kind of religious ceremonies, and we considered everyone who was religious in any way to be weak and stupid or both. And how did that actually then uh, turn around? Because you're you're now a a well-known Catholic author, philosopher, uh, and uh, spiritual guide for people. When when did you first have a spark in your life of saying, you know, there must be something else out there. I'm going to give this some thought. I'm going to begin to explore the world of faith. Well, through all kinds of miracles, actually. And the most important starting miracle was that when I was a graduate student in philosophy, I was looking for truth in philosophy, and all I found was skepticism. And I was about to commit suicide because I didn't see why you should live if there was no truth and there was no love and nothing made any sense and all you live for is to, stu- is to suffer. So I was in this frame of mind when... My mother turned on the Catholic Hour on TV. This is back in 1958. And my mother never turned on the TV at random, ever. But she turned it on, and there were Dietrich and Alice von Hildebrand, these great philosophers. And they were talking about goodness and truth and love. So I wrote a letter to them at the care of the station saying, I'm a philosophy student, and I've been looking for love and truth, and I can't find it. Can you help me? Hmm. And so you got in touch with the Hildebrands. Right. Did you meet them? Yes. So they immediately said, well, we live in New York. I was in New York. We live in New York. Come and see us. 
And so I went to see them, and I was totally bowled over because they were so joyful and so smart and so loving. And so they suggested that I start studying Catholic philosophy instead of atheistic philosophy, and I did. I could figure out from their teaching that, that skepticism was wrong and there were moral absolutes, but I couldn't have figure out how these wonderful, intelligent people were, and who certainly weren't weak, how these very intelligent, strong people could believe all this nonsense that I imagined the Catholic Church teaches. You know, you mentioned something there, Rhonda, about skepticism. I've noticed also in dialoguing with atheists very often that not only are they skeptical and very often cynical, but I've also noticed that they don't have much of a sense of humor. And you're you're always one to have a quick joke and to respond to laughter. And you've responded that the, the von Hildebrands were uh, amazing because of their combination of intellect uh, and joyfulness. And, you know, I think it's uh, something to ponder there to say that if you are skeptical and cynical and atheistic, there's not really much to laugh about. And the only kind of sense of humor I've discerned amongst atheists is a kind of bitter sarcasm uh, in which they can be satirical and sarcastic about religious people. But I don't find any sense of real joy there, and I wonder if that's been your experience as well. I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so. I think that aspect has more to do with temperament, actually. There are people who have a more hopeful temperament, even if they have no reason to hope, Uh particularly people who are very life-loving, who enjoy a lot of things like beauty and food and movies, whatever. So there are people who, who, even though life is obviously tragic, they get so much enjoyment out of life that until they get deathly ill, they don't really feel sad. So maybe the only atheists I'm meeting are the grumpy ones. <laughs> <laughs> that... I think that may be more true of the newer atheists. You know, we're going back to 1959. Mm-hmm. So you then met the Hildebrands, and you encountered people for whom Christianity was not just a true philosophy, but a real pattern for life, uh, gave them a real philosophy which applied in their life. What was the next step? Did you, did you start going to church? Did you start to pray? I mean, No, how... the next step was they used to—the von Hildebrands were all part of all these Europeans who left Europe before World War II because they were anti-Nazi. Mm-hmm. So they used to go back in the summer when they weren't teaching in the summer and run Catholic art tours. And I had no interest in Catholicism, and I hated art. It's very important that I hated art, the reason being my father used to schlep us to museums when we were little kids, and we wanted to play Monopoly. We had to go to the museum instead. So I hated art. But I didn't want to lose them for the whole summer because I loved them so much. So they gave me a fake scholarship to come on the tour. So I agreed to go. Also, I thought it would be neat to see Europe. And uh, so then all these miracles started happening. We don't have too much time, so I'm going to hit the biggest ones. I saw this picture in Florence of Our Lady And it's a Da Vinci picture, very sepia-colored, not colorful. It was an unfinished picture. And I suddenly grasped the idea of purity. 
and I realized I had lost something I never knew existed. And then I started thinking, well, these people don't know what a bad girl I am. If they knew, they'll reject me and I can go home and don't, I don't have to go around to these museums. <laughs> but, of course, they were very touched and thought, you know, they certainly wanted to bring me to Jesus for redemption even more when they found out how much I needed it. And then I saw this picture of Jesus by um, Raphael, a tapestry of Raphael, the Jesus in the boat with the fish, the big catch of fish, the miraculous catch of fish. And it's a very dull old tapestry, but his face came alive and he looked at me. And then we had an audience in St. Peter's with Pius Twelfth, who was the Pope then. And when he was praying with the people in wheelchairs, his face had the exact same expression as the face of Jesus in, who that had come alive. And so then I got a whole different feeling about religion, but I was an intellectual, so the, these mystical experiences couldn't have brought me into the church unless I started reading these great writers like C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis isn't a Catholic, of course, but he had that book, Mere Christianity, completely won me over, and Augustine and Cardinal Newman and Chesterton. So I read these great writers. So that by the time I was 21, I was ready to become a Catholic. And some years later, my twin sister became a Catholic, and then my mother became a Catholic. And I married an, a Jew who was also atheistic, and he became a Catholic. So we were a whole Hebrew Catholic family. Rhonda, the story is pretty amazing of you going to Rome and meeting the Hildebrands and then God's grace working through your family and, and drawing you all home to Rome. You moved on from there to actually begin to uh, embrace the Catholic faith and practice the Catholic faith. Since then, you've got a Ph.D. or a philosopher. You teach at uh, Holy Apostle Seminary in Connecticut. Tell us a little bit about how the philosophical education mixed in with your newfound Christianity. Oh, well, of course, I learned Catholic philosophy, and I got to read Augustine and Thomas and all the greats of Catholic philosophy. And I wasn't planning to teach, but then uh, my husband became disabled with uh, late-onset asthma, and I had to support the family. So I got my degree, Ph.D., and began to teach philosophy. This is way back in the 70s. And I've been teaching ever since, and I love teaching. I think Catholic philosophy, you can teach this, it sort of undercuts the whole area of many Catholics were brought up as Catholics, had some negative experiences, don't really understand the church, but still go to a Catholic school. I've always taught at Catholic universities and Catholic seminaries, but especially Catholic university students you know, they're into sports and partying and stuff like that, many of them, in those the kind of places I taught for a long time. And by going about apologetics through Catholic philosophy, it's easier to get to them. Rhonda, as a Catholic philosopher and as a former atheist, you must have a few thoughts about the rise of atheism in the United States today, especially amongst young people. Do you have any ideas on, on why atheism is making a, a kind of resurgence in our society at this time? Well, there are many, many reasons for that. I think 
It's just the result of decades and decades of skepticism and also just decades and decades of many people being brought up in traditional religions but not with much fervor, like the parents maybe Christmas and Easter type Christians or Catholics. So we have all these people who basically would say, a generation before this, people who would say they believed in God, but they didn't live as if they were deeply religious or anything. And then those kids, those kids hit the university and they have these atheist Marxist professors, other kinds of atheist professors, and they don't have any answers. And then it combines with you can be much, you can lead a much wilder life if you don't have any ideas that God might mind. <laughs> and so all these factors together. One of the things you mentioned really caught my imagination as well. G.K. Chesterton said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has not been tried. Oh, I disagree with that statement. That's one of the few statements of Chesterton who I love that I absolutely disagree with. Because on the one hand, you have the great saints in the Catholic Church, but besides that, you have millions of Catholics who would never have made the sacrifices they did with big families and working and working a job sometimes that were tremendously difficult physically and all this. They would never have been able to do that except because they believed in the truths of Christianity. I just think he's wrong. Well, you know, Rhonda, you have to cut him a break because he liked hyperbole and he liked to make generalizations and he liked wordplay. And it's a pretty nice little twist on words. He would agree with you. Individuals, especially the saints, have tried Christianity and and found that it it is actually working. I think he was talking about society in general that it has been not been tried. It also, therefore, leads I think to a kind of atheism where, as you've said, a lot of young people grow up and they see people who call themselves Christians, but it doesn't make any difference in their lives. It doesn't seem to be vital to them. It doesn't seem to be exciting, and so they say, "Well, I guess it's it's not real," and so they draw that conclusion. I think the answer to atheism, would you think it has to do with a lot of philosophical argument? I, yes, I agree with you. It happens, I've just taught a course, we have, besides our seminarians where I teach, we have distance learning with lay students. We have an undergrad and an MA program of distance learning, which is terrific. And we're teaching a course this summer on the old atheism and the new atheism, how to refute it. And I'm presently working on a book with my co-teacher, Dr. Sebastian Mafoud, and we're writing a book called Catholic Realism, Key to the Refutation of Atheism and the Evangelization of Atheists. So this is big on my mind right now. And what are some of the key points for trying to refute modern atheism and engage with atheists in the world today? We have these students writing responses, and most of them even though they like the proofs to the existence of God, much more they think that you have to personally give personal witness, especially personally loving and understanding the atheist. And so, you know, in my case, I didn't read the arguments for God's existence until after I became a Catholic, actually. I love them, though. <laughs> so I love to reel off these arguments for God's existence, but they, a lot of these youngest, younger people, because many of them are teachers, and these younger MA students say, 
that the biggest thing is that you should personally get to know these atheists, what they've gone through, what they've suffered through, why they think the way they do, and then give witness to why you find so much joy and hope in the Catholic faith, but not start with arguments. Exactly, and that's what first won you over as a young philosophy student in meeting the von Hildebrands. You met people who had a philosophy which was reasonable and intelligible, who were actually trying to live it, trying to, to, to live it in their lives, and it showed. It showed with a, a sense of joy and a sense of contentment, and it was something that you wanted. And therefore, I guess what you're saying is, along with philosophical arguments and along with the, the proofs for God's existence, the real proof for God's existence is in a, a person whose life is being transformed by, by the power of Christ. Now, Rhonda, you're working in a seminary now, helping to train men who have responded to God's call. You've written 65 books, and the latest of them that's out there right now is called Last Call, 12 Men Who Dared Answer. I think the response of a person to a religious vocation is one of those things which makes faith uh, vital and real for people. Can you tell us a bit about this book where you've um, shared some of the stories? Yes, I teach at a seminary that's devoted to late vocations, and that means anyone who comes into who comes into a seminary, say after the after the age twenty five or so. And we have men. We have one man who's going to be ordained at seventy (laughs) six. Now you may laugh at this, but nowadays people live till ninety and a hundred, so he has plenty of time to serve the church. Anyway, we were sitting around, and there's such incredible stories from these men of how they thought they had vocations or how they felt called. So we have men ranging all the way from Canadian Mounties to kids on a farm, little boys on a farm, to people running janitorial services. We have one guy who was a CEO in BP Oil. And at 50, he gave away all his millions to his brother and just came and said to, said to us, I want to be a priest. So we have these fantastic stories of these men. And so I persuaded them to write their stories, and I put it together in a book called this book. And we have a series coming out next May on this from EWTN with some of these stories. But... If you just put in Google, last call, 12 men who dared, you could read this book. And it's also available cheap on um, an e-book. Kindle, Nook. Yeah, it's an e-book. <laughs> Anyways, so it's an e-book, yes. So this book is terrific. You could give this. Many times you'll meet out there in the parish or in your workplace someone who is single, who's very religious, but they didn't become priests for one reason or another, in their early lives, they could be divorced, annulled, or they could be widowers. And if you say to them, you know, you could be a priest, and then they say, oh, no, no, I'm too old, you could give them this book. Excellent. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and my guest today is noted author uh, and teacher of philosophy, Rhonda Chervin. Rhonda, you've written so many books from so many different angles about your Catholic faith. Obviously, you have a great imagination, and you've also got an awful lot of learning. As you live your life day by day, what is the integration between all of those things? How do you actually integrate the, the creative ideas that you have and the learning that you have with your experience? 
Oh, okay. When I first started writing, I thought I would start with scholarly articles, and then I'd move into big scholarly books along the lines of my great mentors. And in fact, I only started to write because there was a need for something. Like I couldn't find something that talked to ordinary people about some subject in their lives, for instance. I don't know if there is such a thing, but I think I've written the only thing on Catholic anger management. It's called Taming the Lion Within Five Steps from Anger to Peace. So it came from seeing that there are Catholics who won't go to anger management groups because they're not religious, but they might read a book by, from a religious spirituality angle about how to overcome with the help of God's grace all this hot anger, irritability, cold anger. If you don't think you fit in this, do you ever say anything angry aloud when someone cuts you off on the freeway, even though you're a Catholic? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's called uh, Catholic Anger Management, Taming the Lion Within. Yes. One of the basic ideas in the book is how we first have to get out of denial. See, many people are in denial on, in the terms of this. They say, well, I'm only angry because everybody else is obnoxious. See, so then I don't have a problem. They have a problem. <laughs> of course, we meet, we meet wonderful people who aren't angry a lot of the time, even though the same obnoxious people are around them, right? <laughs> so we can't really get away with that. So first we have to admit that we're angry, and then we have to see some of the roots of that anger, and then we have to work on healing of that anger, and so forth. And what are the techniques for healing that anger? Because you have to go right down to the roots of the anger to deal with it. Not necessarily. <laughs> it's good to go down to the roots. But one of the biggest roots is simply earth will never be heaven, namely if everybody's a sinner, how could you think everything should go smoothly every day? In other words, it's a question of expectations. Right, right. So you can train yourself, instead of thinking it's outrageous that things aren't going my way, you can train yourself to expect frustrations. There's a whole group that involves these emotions called Recovery International. You could Google it if you have anger, fear, or depression. And it has slogans just like 12-step, and one of the slogans is expect frustrations every five minutes, you won't be disappointed. This is one of the problems in our American culture is I find that expectations are so high that everything is perfect all the time, that we have to have the perfect family, the perfect career, the perfect figure, the perfect face, the perfect spouse, the perfect kind of self-control, and everything, we have these expectations that everything's always going to be perfect, like kind of like Disneyland. And um, the Catholic viewpoint is not that at all. The Catholic viewpoint is that, that this is a great battle to be, to be fought, that we're in the front lines every day, that as soon as we get out of bed, we, we kind of put on our spiritual armor. Uh, and also that it's, it's the other model is in the Catholic view that we're passing through the valley of hardship in this life and we should be prepared to man up and, and deal with it. And so I suppose a book like yours is trying to correct some of those false expectations so that we can actually get real and serve God with that same joyful spirit that you've been exhibiting. Amen. Yes, I agree totally. 
I'm talking to Rhonda Chervin. She's a philosopher, a teacher of philosophy at Holy Apostle Seminary in Connecticut, author of 65 books, a friend of, of mine as well. And she's uh, been sharing with us her story of her conversion to the Catholic faith from Jewish atheism. And I think you've summed it up pretty well, Rhonda, in that this whole journey from unbelief to belief, from despair and cynicism and skepticism to a position of faith and joy and hope is something which takes place most effectively not through philosophical arguments, although they're important and we have to have them in place, but most importantly, it's through a personal encounter, an encounter with somebody else who has discovered this new way, this way of life, this way of hope, and wants to share it with us. And Rhonda, you've shared it with us today in such a wonderful way. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yes, I'd like to say it's not just that we witness joy in our faith, it's also that we show love for them. It's this personal love that someone feels so that they think if they come into the church, they will experience love from the people. Instead of condemnation, instead of rejection and exclusion, is that what you're saying? Not quite. Instead of something impersonal, like Uh they don't want to feel... I don't come into the church alone, I don't know anyone, and people are going to talk at me and get me into this system. They have to feel that someone appreciates who they are, appreciates their seeking, their years of seeking, their wounds of their life and all this, and wants to know them personally and be close to them. So it's a matter of encountering Christ in other people, hoping that the seeker or the inquirer encounters Christ in us, but we also have to have the ability and the eyes to see Christ in them and to be able to welcome them. I think it's St. Benedict who says that every guest must be welcomed as Christ with his great sense of hospitality and a great sense of welcome. We need that in the church. We need that in, in our individual lives. It's wonderful to hear that you experience that. And I know that in your day-to-day life, you have the same sort of outreach to people, to your students and to your friends, a wide circle of acquaintances, uh, because you're sharing that same uh, joy and that same hope that, that Christ has given you. A simple way to do this, my friends, is simply wear a crucifix around your neck showing, and when people talk to you and ask you about it, say, I'm a Catholic and I love being a Catholic. One of the greatest crucifixes to wear, and I'm going to recommend this, is the St. Benedict crucifix. That's the crucifix with the seal, round seal of St. Benedict behind the, the corpus of our Lord. It's, it's a magnificent and a dignified crucifix to wear. Wear those around your neck, and it, you'd be amazed how many people actually come up and compliment you on it and ask you about it, uh, and it's an oppor- opportunity. It reminds me also, you know, Rhonda, of that saying, that uh, quotation from St. Paul when he says, We preach Christ and him crucified. And uh, when we wear a crucifix, we actually preach that to the world in a visual way so that they can be reminded of Christ's love for them. You're listening to More Christianity. Thank you for tuning in today. We'll be back again next week with another guest. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. If you would like to visit my blog, go to Standing on My Head or visit my website, DwightLongenecker.com. You can be in touch with me there. Drop me an email. You can also go from there to the webpage where you can download and listen to all of the former archived articles and programs from this radio show, More Christianity. Rhonda Chervin, thank you for joining us today.